goes by the pseudonym Bo Snurdly. It's time for the soul of excellence. He is a radio host at 77 WABC here in New York. The Rush Hour is on the air. Rush, Rush. Now here's Bo Snurdly on the Red Apple Podcast Network. It's time for the Soul of Excellence. He is a radio host at 77 WABC here in New York. The Rush Hour is on the air. Rush, Rush. Now, here's Bo Snurdly. Welcome to your Tuesday Rush Hour here on WABC. If you'd like to be part of today's program, all you have to do is dial 800-848-WABC. 800-848-9200. Well, the Jim Jordan House Judiciary hearings are gone. They had quite a day yesterday, and I just want to pick up on one or two points. If you want to comment on it at any point during the show, that's fine. But remember, today is usually Mark Stein Day. Mark is going to take a rest today. And we are going to have, though, and we've been talking about this, the amazing artist, John Cicada, is expected to join us shortly. And your calls, of course. Uh, The hearings yesterday, there were so many people on the left that are saying, look, this is political theater, this was a stunt. And and I want to just address that for a minute. Yes, there was an aspect of it that was political theater. It was political theater in response from the Republican Party to the political theater that was played before the entire nation with this incredible arrest of President Donald J. Trump, former President Trump, which was nothing but political theater and is designed to be political theater and more importantly designed to help destroy him and destroy any chances that he has of running for office again. So this is what do you expect. This is politics. You're in the political arena. One party does something and another person uh, reacts to it. So, yeah, from that standpoint, it was political theater. But here's not what's political theater. When you have witnesses, and these witnesses are saying to you, I lost my son due to violence, or you have other witnesses, oh, then the, then the complaint is, well, the witnesses are cherry-picked. The witnesses are the witnesses, and every witness to every congressional hearing is cherry-picked. If you, They are picked out of a universe of people that could be there, They're cherry-picked. That makes no difference. What they had to say was valid. And in this case, these people had lost sons, had lost relatives to violence, and in New York City, under Alvin Bragg, they did not receive justice. Now, you can try to sugarcoat that any way that you want to, but the fact still remains. And these people were treated horribly by Democrats. You had Hank Johnson. This is the congressman, don't forget, who years ago suggested that the island of Guam was going to be, uh, was going to flip over into the sea if we put too many service people there. And he literally said, he really said that too many people on Guam having whatever, I think it was, you know, uh, having an increase in, in our servicemen there 
literally he worried that the island would fall under the sea from the weight of human beings. It was absolutely absurd, silly, ridiculous, and just beyond silly. But he was serious. This guy's not, I don't want to make fun of him, I don't want to call him names, but let's face it. There's a, a gap there between what you would expect the intellect to be of someone elected to an office of Congress and, and what he's displayed. And he went on to berate these, this, this woman, Jerry Nadler, berate a New Yorker, berated this woman who lost her son and, and, and said to her she should be pretty much, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, she should be praising. You, you neglected to mention that two of these people have life sentences thanks to Alvin Bragg. That's not the point. There were two others who were on the streets. Four people were responsible for her son's murder in her views. And she in her view. And she wants justice applied to all of them, not just some of them. And for that she gets berated. Other Democrats, oh, we think you're just being used. You're a tool. In other words, you lost your child, but put that aside because our political objectives as a Democrat are more important than you losing your child and wanting justice. I'm telling you, these, this gives a window in to just how vile the thinking is. And I hope every single resident of New York, every single one who has lost somebody to crime was looking at those hearings or sees clips of the way these families are being treated by the Democrats who are so anxious to get Trump that nothing else matters including the people that Alvin Bragg has stomped over so that he can work out whatever this weird ideology is that these Soros district attorneys have about releasing criminals. And it's not just in New York, it's city after city. There is a story in the New York Times today as migrant children were put to work, the United States ignored the warnings. This is in the New York Times. It prints out to 18 pages. And it's all about how the Biden administration ignored, ignored what was really happening on the ground with these immigrant children that came to this country without parental supervision and how they are now finding themselves in jobs and employed even though they're minors and how the vetting process of those who supervise them was ignored. Well, I don't have time to do an in-depth on the article with the time that we have because I also want to get to some other things. And as I said, we have a guest today. But I want to just say this about that story. What is missing from the New York Times story, number one, is... How many of these immigrant kids have been appropriated by sex traffickers? There's no report on that because I think that would be too devastating. But even the way it is, inside the story, you will see that there are parents who understood how weak our border protections are, how weak our immigration system is who specifically sent their kids here to America, their children, minor children, to get work. And those children are now working, which, of course, 
many of us are appalled that these children are being put to work. They're being put to work so that they can send remittances back home. And the Biden administration has not only encouraged this tacitly, but is responsible for this situation. I don't have more on that one. This story's not going away. And the New York Times, although they did an expose, their expose wasn't a complete expose. And I think a complete expose on how truly terrible what has happened is would be so devastating, perhaps no one wants to do the true expose on how these children have been exploited that were sent to the United States of America. James Golden, a.k.a. Snurley, WABC Talk Radio 77. We are coming back in mere moments. Please don't go away. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. This is the Rush Hour with Bose Nerdly on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Get ready, my friends, for a night you won't forget. A night with one of my favorite recording artists, international superstar John Cicada. That's coming to the Bergen Performing Arts Center this Friday, April 21st. And I have a pair of tickets for you. If you are the seventh caller right now, you'll take those tickets, 800-848-WABC is the number, 800-848-WABC. Win a pair of tickets to see John Cicada this Friday at Bergen Pack. 800-848-WABC, seventh caller for tickets to John Cicada. And we're going to be having tickets for all the Bergen Pack shows. You can visit bergenpack.org for more information. We, and we'll have more information here, too, about some of the shows coming up. Best of luck to you with these. This is going to be a show that would, should be just totally outstanding. John Cicada, this Friday. The Bergen Performing Arts Center. WABC Talk Radio 77, and we are expecting any moment to uh, hear from Mr. Cicada. And of course, your calls, 800-848-WABC for your calls as well. I mentioned this story that we had, and I'm going to get back to it. The, uh, the case that happened out in St. Louis was also big news. And he has been apprehended. Well, he surrendered, actually. And that that GoFundMe is now up at over $2 million for that young man. But right now, it is such a treat to welcome to our airwaves the one, the only, John Cicada. How are you, sir? Yo, how are you? Real good, brother. How are you? 
I am just delighted, delighted. You, when I tell people, we, we, we play your music a lot on this show, and we talk about you a lot. Um, Thank you so much. I want to ask you, I want to begin by asking you a question about the work Uh that it takes, the work that it took you to be John Cicada. When you first came, I remember when the ads first started coming out for your album, your, the John Cicada album that took you to the top with just another day. And it was just like you came out of nowhere, but people don't (laughs) know. A lot of people would not know what it took for you to get to that point. You are an accomplished musician you went to school for this. You studied. You are an amazing songwriter, but this didn't happen by accident. Talk to us about what you did to prepare yourself to be the success that you are. Um, well, I guess it started from the uh, the standpoint of uh, just wanting to be the best uh, musician that I, that I could be. Uh, here in South Florida, everything started for me here in South Florida. Um, went to college. I got a bachelor's and a master's in music, and that was for me. That was a, a pivotal uh, point in my uh, career in terms of um, uh, feeling like a musician. I mean, uh, having the confidence of, of a musician, um, and at the same time, um, being able to uh, uh, to create relationships and, and have the kind of relationships and and the friendships and the, the uh, and working with so many people that um, uh, that started my career uh, that have been you know that have been a part of my career because of 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 of, uh, of that of my education of going to college and and working the clubs and and teaching <laughs> and doing jingles and and then eventually kind of as a blue collar guy just just working up the um, just working really hard uh, to um, uh, to make a living as a uh, as a musician, as a singer, and um, and eventually got my chance. But you know, I I always looked at my career from the standpoint of um, of just wanting to make a living in music, and um, and that for me that was number one. I just I loved my craft enough, and. Uh, and after that, just got lucky. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> lucky uh, along the way, just because uh, you know I just got, was able to meet uh, uh, Emilia Stefan, uh, Gloria, Stef- Gloria Stefan's husband, and and work with, with his production company. Um, and I did that with him for five years uh, before uh, in writing. I mean, uh, doing songwriting, doing production work, doing all kinds of stuff before that first album uh, came out or was able to come out. And so, yeah, it's true. I guess that it's, it's just, there's definitely a process to it. And at least uh, mine, that was, that was my process. And, and, uh, but I, I've, I've always enjoyed the fact that it, uh, it, it all started just, again, just loving what I do. And then from, from there, my ambitions took over. Uh, and, and I've been very, very blessed and fortunate, you know, to, uh, You've to, worked with the likes of Frank. You worked Frank Sinatra. You did a duet with Frank Sinatra, and yeah. for Frank and and how was that? I mean, Frank Sinatra is, of course, a legend, a legend. But you've worked with legends. You've worked with Olivia Newton-John. You've written songs with J Lo, with Ricky Martin. Of course, the songs you've written with Gloria Estefan. 
you you have traveled in amazing company and done amazing work with with Pavarotti. You've worked with Luciana Pavarotti. You've the yeah, best of yeah. the best in these in these different genres have all worked with you because obviously they recognize your talent. What is that like working with some of these names? Well, it's just tremendous opportunities and blessings, man. Because I, uh, and, and all, and they're all the as a result of just the success of the very first album and um, and the second album especially too. So I think those opportunities I'll, I'll cherish and I'll take them with me for the rest of my life. And and to uh, yeah, that duet with Sinatra, especially after starting music, you know, start studying music and. And and uh, and and knowing and appreciating and uh, and studying all the all the great singers and um, and just to have my name next to his for me that was a tremendous tremendous thing and um, you know I and every opportunity after that it was it was um, it was like I didn't. I, I, I didn't know how is why it was happening. I just knew that you know between my manager and my uh, my agent and and the people working around me, they they were uh, these opportunities were coming up, and I and I, and I took them obviously because uh, just to just to be around and work uh, just work with all these tremendous artists, and that was for me that was amazing and. Uh, but it all kind of fell in my lap. But yeah, as a result, I guess again the success and the travels and everything that I, that came about because of the first couple of CDs in particular, and and um, and that's the reason that I'm still here. And then of course everything that happened to my my career afterwards. I went to Broadway and and all that kind of stuff. So I, yeah, it's uh, a lot of opportunities, a lot of wonderful people, uh, uh, tremendous collaborations. Like you said, and I will always cherish them, and I'll never forget them. <laughs> not, not Scott, only. you have we have Scott. We've all talked about your music, and Scott has had a burning question that we would like to ask you. <laughs> okay, Scott. Yeah, in, in the songs, especially the, the earlier songs, where you had both English and Spanish versions of the hit, did you write right. the English version first or the Spanish version first? The, the English version, yeah. The the interesting thing about my career is that was I was signed initially um, to record in English. Um, the uh, the thought of of doing anything in Spanish was an afterthought. That my manager, his idea, of course, uh, he had to go to the record company and say, "Look, this guy, by the way, I mean, <laughs> he uh, was raised completely bilingual. Uh, I was writing songs and doing stuff in both languages." Uh, as it is, as Spanish is my it's my first language to begin with, and I. So that was that's how everything kind of my crossover, really started that way, uh, which maybe at the time for a lot of artists, especially Latin artists, it wasn't that way. They they would record and do stuff in in Spanish and then do their crossover, have the crossover opportunity into English after the fact. But but my mine was the other way around. I I did all. My first album, um, it was out already, all in English. And then um, a few months later, we started to work some, on, on adapting some of the songs, writing some songs that will be a part of what became my first uh, 
uh, you know, Spanish CD, and and that ended up being just as successful as the English. And for us, that was again another tremendously sweet surprise, um, <laughs> another blessing to have had a a bilingual career, and I've traveled the world as a result of the fact that my career was uh, has been in, in two languages, both in English and Spanish, and. Uh, so it's been, yeah, it's been a, a great ride for that, though. Great ride. I'm sure you have heard this before, but there are a lot of non-Spanish speaking who also buy your Spanish speaking albums because they love your <laughs> voice so much, and they love. I'm happen to be one of them. I mean, I took I took Spanish when I was in junior high school, so beyond a right. few words and maybe so, I'm I'm not I'm not a fluent Spanish speaker, but um, your your music is so compelling. As soon as Otro Día Más came out, I'm like, I have to have this album. Okay, in Spanish, <laughs> the whole thing, and everything that you yeah. do, and there you have true fanatics. First of all, you have a range. Your vocal range is incredible. You are not, and and you know what? You are the perfect kind of the fusion album. We can tell by what you write and the way that you write it that you're not a faker. You don't pose with funk. You understand funk. You don't pose with, <laughs> with, with, you're not, you're not a poser. You actually know soul music. You know funk. You know pop. You know, you know the music. And so every, when you do, when you move off into different styles of writing, it's authentic. Nothing sounds like it's faked. And that's just a rare ability. And then you have the ability to also, the reason that we asked the question, you can't really tell which came first, the Spanish version or the English version, because it all oh, sounds yeah. so natural. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was that was always the idea, especially. Well, for I, you know, and I grew up working with the with the great artists that we're just so so used to um, going back and forth between English and Spanish, and I, I and and that's the way that I that's my community where I live, you know, in South Florida, that's, that's the way that it is. It's, it's based on, um, uh, on being completely diverse between English and Spanish. And I, um, and, and that's awesome. So my music, yeah, that was, uh, it became a part of, of who I was as, uh, who I am as a Latino, uh, and who I was as a part of, of this community here in South Florida. Um, and then seeing having great examples like Gloria Steph on other artists that were trying to do the same, especially Gloria. And uh, um, and for me, that was uh, uh, again the, the the grassroots of of where I grew up, um, and uh, and the experiences that that I was a part of. That, that's the reason I think that the success of those records came to be in, 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 in Spanish as well. Uh, because yeah, there were. Um, it's it's who I am as well. You know, I'm I'm, I'm very proud of my of my roots and where I come from, and so um, the language kind of flows through me that way, uh, I guess. And and um, and yeah, I mean, I thank you. I my infusion, the fusion of my music, man. I I um, it's always been attached to yeah. I think understanding. Uh, Understanding the rhythms, how to connect them, based on what I wanted to do, and I grew up uh, again in the city. Grew up listening to the radio, and in the city that was just you would listen to all kinds of music. 
Yeah, all man. At the same time. Yeah. You all at the same time. I mean, exactly. Pop, rock, R and B, salsa. I mean, it's you name it. Dance music. The that's that's the kind of community that that I that I'm still in and I'm still a part of and and uh, and that became a part of my music too. And then I went when I went to college and was able to kind of learn and and. <clears throat> And understand and how to eventually later how to connect in the studio working with other writers and and the arrangers and stuff to how to connect the, what I wanted to do based on my influences and and the, and everything that uh, you know that was a part of my life as a, as a musician I put I put the pieces together there it is and the fusion of all that stuff between what I love on the radio and and just understanding, understanding what I want, and I guess understanding understanding it enough. <clears throat> I have one last question for you, John. Your dad yes, was a political prisoner in Cuba for a while, and then came yeah. to the United States. You, from what I understand, opened up his own business here. Did he talk to you as kids about what his life was like in Cuba and and what what was possible in America? Well. You know, when we uh, when we came to to that's a good question. When we came to the states, um, this, this was our our dream. You know, to we were in search for freedom, um, and I I have vague memories. You know, I left Cuba when I was eight. I didn't get to the states till I was close to thirteen. We went to Spain, went to Costa Rica, uh, so we 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 bounced a lot. Uh, before eventually uh, coming coming to the states, that's what we wanted. This is our was our, our final destination, and I. Um, so being here, uh, by the time uh, we got here, we realized that we're, you know, this is this is it. This is what we were after, um, and then it, all those experiences. Yeah, we never. They were never really kind of uh, discussed again. I we lived in I lived them. I still remember. Um, my father was obviously was uh, the main person dealing with it. My mother doing the best she could uh, was raising only child. So it was it was just uh, the three of us trying to trying to make it to survive. But you know we appreciated uh, the fact that we're in the states and. And at that point, just starting a new dream um, based on new opportunities. And, well, your and, dream has given inspiration to millions and <laughs> millions of other people. John Zucotta, and it's an honor and pleasure to have you with us. I hope you come back. No, man, thank you so much. I Thank you for having me. And, uh, and yeah, looking forward to uh, to what's, uh, what's next week, the show. I mean, uh, uh uh, well, next week. Wait a minute. The show is, is this uh, week. Is this Friday? It's Friday at the Bergen at, Pax. At, right at the Bergen Performing Arts uh, Center of uh, the Theater. Yes, absolutely. I'm looking forward to to it. And it's, and it's, it's the show's a journey. It's a journey of my career. So that's excellent. It's, it's, and we're giving away you know. tickets. We have a winner for the tickets we gave away today that are going to go see you, John Cicada. All the best to you again. We hope to have you Thank back. You so much. And go see him. Check him out this Friday, folks, at the Bergen Performing Arts Center. Friday, April 21st. John Cicada. Thank you, John. James Golden, a.k.a. Snurvy, here with you. you. And thank you, WABC.
is The Rush Hour with Bo Snerdly on the Red Apple Podcast Network. W-A-B-C. John Cicada again, folks, Friday night at the Bergen Pack Center. You got to go check him out. live version just another day without you we have some breaking news too Scott asked me during the break what did you hear about the case and I'm telling him all these details about the case. John Zakata. Scott, what is the breaking yeah, news? Yeah, bre- this was breaking right as we came on the air, so we kind of missed this because we were not looking at the uh, news immediately as we were coming on. Uh, lawyers for Dominion Voting Systems and Fox News have come to a $787.5 million settlement agreement before the opening of the trial was set to begin. This is according to OAN, and now I'm, I was looking, everybody's reporting on this. Uh, except for Fox News, ironically. Uh, Dominion was scheduled to present its opening statement to the jury at 1.30 p.m. on Tuesday. However, the trial was mysteriously delayed. The two lead lawyers for the case, Dominion attorney Justin Nelson and Fox attorney Dan Webb, went into the judge's chambers and returned back to the courtroom. It was speculated that the two parties were discussing a settlement due to the trial being Delay today, which in fact is what happened. The trial was initially set to begin on Monday. This settlement stops what would have been considered one of the biggest media trials in U.S. history. Yeah. $787.5 million. And they were suing for $1.6 bill. So about half that. So they took half and just said, okay, we rich. Uh, we richer. And that's that. But this will avoid a lot of embarrassing testimony. That was set to take place. Earlier in the day, a special master had been appointed because there were concerns over Fox and the discovery process. Dominion claimed that Fox hadn't turned over everything that they were supposed to, apparently. And so now, no trial. It's all settled. It's all done. I guess I can say the word Dominion again without uh, being... The fund for Ralph Yarl, we're going to take your calls in a moment, 800-848-WABC. The GoFundMe for him has now reached $2.8 million. It was also a unity walk. And I just want to say, people of goodwill, all colors, all, every, every crosswalk of life that you can think of has shown support for this young man, who by all accounts was just a stellar student, a member of the Technology Student Association of the Science Olympia team, jazz and competition band, section leader in the marching band, a scholar, shot in the head and the arm because he rang a doorbell and it was the wrong house. I had an interesting conversation. I was interviewed today. And and the interviewer asked me, well, do you think it was necessarily racism? I don't know. I'm not going to jump to that conclusion. You know, you have a 
young man rings the doorbell, wrong doorbell, uh, of an 85-year-old man. And this kind of goes to a story that was also in the press. And, and, and this was, where was this? In the, in the uh, Amazon Prime Washington Post today. America's toxic mix of guns, concern over crime, and fear-mongering. Now, I thought I was going to get one thing when I read the story, and I should have known. It's the Amazon Prime Washington Post. So what you get is no secret that Americans own more guns than the residents of any other country on Earth. Civilians in the United States own 120 guns for every 100 residents, nearly twice the rate in the next in the territory with the next highest level of gun ownership, which is the Falkland Islands. That didn't help them against the Brits. And they talk about how guns have sales have surged in years, and then America and crime. But of course, then they blame Fox News. Fox News, okay, mentions of crime on its broadcast have surged in recent years. So it's Fox News' fault, all these fears about crime, because they're reporting crime. Not that the crime is actually happening, you see. Not that there are more criminals. We, in the past 24 hours, there have been stories about marauding bands of young people. There was a story out in California where I think it was... 300 kids rushed a convenience store, totally looted it out. And you saw the one in Chicago, all these kids out in the streets, totally looting it out, terrorizing people. You see the stories of murder every single day and mayhem and, and homelessness and the cities going, looking totally like they're in war zones. But it's Fox's fault because they report. They report more. They're fear-mongering by reporting the crime. And I guess to these people at the Washington Post, they don't understand that if the crime weren't happening, there would be nothing to report, that it's actually happening. It's like these people at the hearing yesterday that are berating people for actually saying they want justice for the members of their families that were actually hurt by crime. We have a few calls on that hearing yesterday. Let's start. Let's go to Kay in Manhattan. Kay, you're on WABC Talk Radio 77. How are you? Well, James, thank you. Um, Yes, I'd like to say that I was appalled yesterday watching parts of that hearing and the way those people uh, were called props. They they had their their love. The woman who had her her son and her husband almost killed brutally. And to say that that's political, I don't agree with it because these people, this was their opportunity to speak to these lawmakers who support these laws, like. Uh, like Jackson and Nadler, and and that I I don't consider that political. It gave them an opportunity to bring their their grievances, their true grievances, into the public eye. And I would like those people, like Nadler and Jackson and the others, to go live in 
the minority communities. I would like them to go live in the housing projects where, by the way, all this money that we have and how the Democrats really care about about the poor, those they never fix those housing projects. There's always leaking, no heat, all kinds of problems. But aside from that, the terrible criminality and to to put these people in this position, to let them suffer like this, and then to refer to them as props, no way, no way. You know who's using them? The Democratic Party is using them. That's who's using them. Because no matter how much they suffer, they do nothing. The people like Bragg, they put in, in these prosecutors, and he says the crime is down. That's a lie. That's like saying uh, you have cancer, but we're going to call it a cold. They, they plea bargained down. They made robbery. If you have a gun and you don't use it, you're not charged with a gun crime. This is baloney. This is, these are complete lies, and everything they said can be proved as a lie. And as a New Yorker, okay, thank you. You know, let me just say one other thing because we got to rush to a break. I want you to contrast what you were, what you saw at that hearing yesterday, with what you saw at the January sixth hearings, please, people. Now, the woman that was killed, the death that actually happened at J six was Ashley Babbitt. But Democrats have gone on for almost two and a half years talking about how awful this was. Democracy was teetering. Democracy would die in darkness because of this wicked protest that took place. And again, I have never, ever suggested that those who vandalized, who broke into the Capitol, who trespassed should not be held accountable. But look at what has happened. They have been treated like domestic terrorists because they dared protest inside where these elected politicians of both parties do their work. And so they have gone all out to make sure these people get the longest jail sentence possible. They were held in jail, no bail, because they offended the political class. Now look what happens when real people show up before these very same politicians to say, my son was killed, or I had a member of my family, or you threw me in jail when I defended myself against a criminal. They laugh at you. They scoff at you. They call you names. They treat you like you're trash and garbage and that you shouldn't have a view. Oh, poor you. You're just being a tool. They insult these people to their face who have suffered real harm. But look at the way they respond when someone threatens their workplace. They want to lock them up and throw away the key. They do think they're better than you, and they are worth more than you, and your life does not matter nearly as much as theirs. James Golden, a.k.a. Snurley, coming back. More after this. This is The Rush Hour with Bo Snurdly on the Red Apple Podcast Network. W-A-B-C Talk Radio 77. Mark Stein will be back with us next week. You can always check him out at steinonline.com. 
Also, Mark Stein, that's S-T-E-Y-N, Cruises. For more information on the cruises, don't you know, Mark has a new book that dropped on Amazon as well. So Mark will be with us for our regular session with him on Tuesday. And we're looking forward to hearing from Mark Stein. Mark Stein online. Let's go back to the telephone, shall we? Mike in Newburgh, how are you? James, how are you? You're Good, more than you. a breath of fresh air. You're oxygen, my friend. <laughs> tell you thank you. Um, I'll tell you what. I, I've heard so much debate over why we're letting people loot Walgreens and Gucci stores and why, why we're letting rioters out of jail and, and turning violent criminals loose in our streets. And, and everyone say, well, the cause chaos or this and that. I agree with none of that. I think the reason, the real reason is one word, reparations. It's more than just writing a check to people. It is turning a blind eye towards the justice system. And this is rooted in guilt-ridden, mostly white liberal politicians and the Alvin Bragg types of the world who work with them. And they turned a blind eye because it was the Democrat policies years ago that were the Jim Crow laws and the KKK and the poll taxes and the KKK and the hangings and all this stuff. This was all, you know, they're the ones who fought the civil war Civil, uh, civil uh, war to keep slavery. So I think these guys, they're just turning a blind eye saying, okay, well, here, you can take the store because, you know, we did some bad things years ago. And anyone half a brain knows that slavery was, was a terrible human tragedy. But these guys are trying to appease their consciences, I think, but at the expense of, of civilized society. I mean, it, this is crazy what they're doing. It is absolutely crazy when you see these hundreds of kids now, knowing that they can just go into a store, loot it out, and nothing is going to be done to them. It's insane. You have more and more closings. In fact, one of the premier stores in Portland, and I forget the name of it, RE something, just closed. And you had another bunch of Walmart saying, we're out of here. We can't put up with the crime anymore in these neighborhoods. What is happening across these United States, and people are seeing this, and these Democrats that are on this committee that are blaming the victims, you guys can stay in denial. You can stay in denial all you want to, but not just America is looking at this. The world is looking at this and wondering, what on earth is wrong inside the United States? Tom in Woodbridge, you're up next. Get right to your point, please, Tom. Time's running out. Yeah. You have this kid, Wall, Jaw, whatever the hell his name is, that got shot in whatever state. Now, apparently the white homeowner thought that he was a criminal, all right? Now, what makes you think that, or rather, I should say, is hey, Tom, you know what? This- Let me just stop you even before you get started. This world jaw or whatever his name is, that's not really good enough. You know, this sarcasm for this kid that got shot, this, this, I don't know whether you intended it, but it really came off like that. And I have no interest in talking with you until you at least take the time to get his name right if you want to talk about him. And to say that you thought that he was mistaken for a criminal, you don't know what was in the other guy's head. Thank you for the call. Anne in Staten Island, you're up next. Hi. <clears throat> Hi, Bo. Um, I watched the hearing yesterday on C-SPAN from the beginning to the very end. Extremely impressed with the way it was run. Of course, tell so much for the veterans, for the um, victims. But one thing that I really noticed was Every single victim, not one of them, was attacked with a gun. 
a gun was never used. And I'm so glad that that was brought out. I don't think it made a dent on the side of the left, but I, I was really, really impressed with that. And when they held up all these statistics on uh, how safe New York City is, that was that was immediately negated by the veteran detective and by that wonderful Democrat from the city council that was also sitting with the victims. So I think there was a lot that came out of it. Also, the fact that Alvin Bragg has used federal money that was supposed to go to crime prevention and also to help the victims. And it was very obvious victims do not get help in New York City. You know, I, I just came away with a relatively good feeling like this is, you know, things can change. It may be very slow, maybe very gradual, but I just had a good feeling about it. And I understand that these hearings are, are going to be held in other cities where our George Soros has funded the different DAs. I mean, Brad got a million dollars from Soros, you know. Well, so actually, from what I understand, um, they, he donated a million dollars to it. 500,000 of it was sent by the group. To uh, to Bragg's campaign, at least that's the last reading I had of it. Uh, and I hope you're right. I hope things do change. I think America is hungry for change right now. And I mean, change that goes beyond the political, change that actually makes a difference, and so we can see a difference. I think people are beyond sick of these mass shootings every day or every other day. And there's so much in this country that we have to address. May God bless and protect each and every single one of you. And Lord knows we need it and your families. God willing, we'll be back here tomorrow at 4 o'clock for Bo Snerly's Rush Hour. Thank you to John Sakata. Thank as love and gratitude for each and every one of you for being here. See you tomorrow. Bye.